Well, we are um, we're going to get into the message this morning. I, I, I don't know, some of you that don't know, my nephew who is normally here, the reason that was a little bit uh, awkward at first about the uh, offering time, because usually the, my nephew Andrew is jumping up here, and what he didn't realize is there is no excuse for missing uh, your, <laughs> even though he's on his honeymoon, that is no excuse to miss being here to usher. No, I'm kidding. I do have a heart. I'm kind of hard on my nephew because I used to change his diapers when he was little, so, you know. Um, but uh, Andrew and Chelsea, uh, Ken, our worship pastor, his daughter, they were married yesterday. She's a brummet now. I'm so sorry, Ken. Um, but uh, it was a great addition to our family, and um, it was a really joyful time, beautiful wedding, and uh, they're off somewhere. They didn't, Andrew purposely didn't tell me where they're going because he knows I might would mess with him, so <clears throat> they're uh, but. You know, when I thought about that yesterday, you know, I didn't get married till I was 30 years old. And I was a guy, kind of oddly enough, even at 16 years old, the thing I wanted the most, I had a great example as a mom and dad, Christian parents, uh, four siblings. I had three siblings, four kids in the family. And that's just what I wanted. You know, I wasn't thinking about being a doctor or a lawyer. I was like, that will come whatever school I go to or whatever I put myself to. But, but finding that right one, you know, getting married, that's a bigger deal. And, and, uh, I was so scared of making the wrong choice that I waited a long time, but so thankfully I did. God had uh, the right one planned for me. But, you know, I had these visions of grandeur when I was going to get married because, you know, right in my life at the time as a single, when you go to all these weddings and you're always the one that's single and you're always standing there to catch the garter, you know, and you catch it and people are like, yeah, right, you know, <laughs> that one is not getting married next, you know, but... But you go through that, and it's a joyous occasion for everybody except for the single person that's still waiting, you know? And somehow in your mind, even though realistically, if you're honest with yourself, that's not going to fix all your problems, but when you're single, you think it is. If, I just, if God would just bring that person to me, I'd have the perfect wife, the perfect amount of kids. My kids would always be perfect over everybody else's. Everything will be perfect. But then you meet that person, and then there's all this... Um, you know, bliss, and you just can't wait till you're the mar- the wedding, and you get back from the honeymoon. But then all of a sudden, it's like, well, you both have to have jobs, or sometimes initially, and you got bills to pay still. And oh yeah, now I'm not just responsible for my own problems; we got problems to share. And reality starts to hit that it's not all perfect, and you begin to really experience life's roller coaster, the highs and the lows. And no matter how perfect you are together, no matter if you ever fight or anything, you still are not exempt from life's problems. And so we ride life's roller coaster. Uh, Today's message is titled, Lessons from a Roller Coaster Life. And we are focusing, as Ken said, on Mark, uh, the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 27. You know, some of... These up and downs, the life's emotions and diverse experiences. Some are easy, some are hard. Some uh, were, were ecstatic and some are mundane. The Bible shows us that life is that way. And that we can trust in God through all of life's events. Can you imagine a Bible? God was very wise in how he created the Bible. because Can you imagine? He could have told all his truths in there with no stories about people. Have you thought about that? The truth of God's word about eternity and what you need to get there, he could have told it without everybody's story. But how well, how well would it impact you if you didn't see the power of it? When you can read about somebody 2,000 years ago and the truth of God's word 
impacted them in a way that when you get a hold of God, it does the same thing with you. That's what tells us that the Word of God is living and active. You know, non-believers, atheists, they don't get that. When you talk about being the living Word, like, oh, well, I could show you some, some uh, places where it contradicts itself. Well, you know what the Word says about that? That those who are unbelievers, they're, they're not going to, it's going to seem foolish to them. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand. Christians cannot understand the Word of God without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Word of God says. Only through the illumination of the Holy Spirit can you even understand it. You know, you think, that's weird. It's words. It's English. I can read it, Pastor. I'm sure I could understand it. You know what? I remember what it was like trying to read the Word when I was away from God. And that seemed awful boring and mundane. It seemed like this is really what people for thousands of years have like come together in a church and this thing hasn't died out yet. But the truth is that that's why it's living and active because it is about real people who lived real instances with God, their roller coaster of life. You study their successes, you see their failures. But all in all, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's filled with stories of people encountering incredible things and stories of people enduring devastating lows. If the Bible only had stories of the good times, where would we find strength for the bad times? And if the Bible only talked of the bad times, where would we find belief for the good times? You know, if I didn't know that King David, a man after God's own heart, struggled with women issues, I'd have no hope because here's a man at the top of his game, right? A king, God says, a man after my own heart, yet he struggles with women. What about Zacchaeus? If I didn't know that you, you could be a, a corrupt businessman, a tax collector, who, who's all in it for himself and he'll cheat anybody, who can encounter Jesus and completely have a change in his heart and his life and everything the way he does everything, I'd have no hope, right? But I've seen from God's word the highs and lows of others. The Bible is a book of contrasts filled with lessons for every stage of our life's journey. So today, as we look at the story found in Mark chapter 9, it's a total roller coaster ride. I mean, it starts with the ultimate religious experience. Probably the biggest thrill a follower of Jesus could ever have. And we get to see the disciples when they feel like they're at the top of their game. But then the story continues and they go to the deepest valley. It's here where we observe a father at his lowest point as well. It's a roller coaster story. So from this story, we learn lessons both of the times at the, at the top, at the peak. You can learn from that time. But we also see that you can learn lessons from God's word in the valleys. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 27. I'll read this to you if you want to follow along, starting in verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart from the, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, uh, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten them. That's right. Your miracle stain remover couldn't got your clothes as white as Jesus was that, at that time. Here's, the, the, here's where it gets real crazy. Verse 4, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. You ever been in one of those situations when I worked at Walmart corporate office for seven years? 
and I got a few opportunities to be in a room with some big wigs, right? And, and everybody has something to say, and you're just scrambling. What can I say to sound smart? This might be my opportunity. So you just blurt something out, and then you walk out of the meeting thinking, oh, good grief, why can't I keep my mouth shut? You know, what does that? My grandpa used to say, better for people to think you're a fool than to open your mouth and prove them right. And so, you know, Peter, poor Peter, um, we, you know, we understand from other experts of Peter closer to the crucifixion. Peter's, he's a pretty zealous guy, but he just kind of blurts out, let's build some temples, you know. Let's, let's, let's ride this out a little bit. I mean, we've got Elijah and Moses here and, and Jesus now. It's proof to me this is truly the Son of God. Let's, let's go. And then verse 7 says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Verse 8, Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them, that they should tell no one the things they saw until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Verse 10, So they kept his, this word to themselves, questioning what was risen, what risen from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Verse 12, Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is, how, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man? that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and that they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. It's in other words, using Elijah as a foreshadowing of what's going to come for Jesus. That the cross is coming, that the death is coming. And uh, so we, we see here this amazing moment. I mean, and, and the thing that's interesting is Jesus, the Son of God, who comes to encourage him? Mortal men who run the race well and receive their reward already. Elijah and Moses coming back and they're encouraging Jesus on this mountaintop and the disciples. You know, we all have mountaintop experiences in our Christian walk. Amazing moments when we experience the glory of God and feel so close to Him. And those moments are priceless. And you feel God in such a powerful way. I, I mentioned in first service, as many of you have heard it over and over, but I, I go back so many times that first time that that when I didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking tongues, and it happened to me, and I felt the power of God come over me, uh, I experienced that. It, I ended up laid out in the altar, and, and the power I felt in my life, the boldness that came for witnessing after that, it was exactly in line with the Acts account. And I knew at that moment there was no arguing anymore whether this was really for the saints of today or if that was a thing gone past. It happened to me, and it lined up with God's word, and the results were it pushed me closer to God and evangelism, reaching out to others. And I had that mountaintop experience. But, you know, the thing is, is I thought at that moment, okay, now I've arrived, and I will be feeling like this forever. But I had discouraging times after that, and I hit some valleys and understood that, God did that for a reason. It, it, it's not that anything failed because I couldn't stay there. It's that God meant it for a reason and that time has passed. It could happen again, but it's not happening every day. So there's some lessons from the mountaintop I want us to get. There's, there's some important lessons we can gain from uh, the mountaintop experiences. The first lesson is that mountaintop experiences don't last forever. You know, Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. I mean, who could blame him? He wanted to build three temples, you know, one for each person. You got your own temple, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And on the mountaintop, there was no long walks 
down hot, dusty roads. They've been following Jesus. I'm sure their feet were blistered at times. Sand rubbing their feet raw, you know, all those things. That, that's where the ministry really was, was happening. But, hey, let's stay up here where we can have these great experiences with God. I'm sure the air was a little crisper up there, higher, a little more moisture in the air, not so dry. I mean, there's no critics to bash them for their beliefs. There was the mountaintop and the life was easy, but Jesus knew there was still work to be done, so they couldn't stay. Verse 9 says, as they were coming down from the mountain. See, when that incredible moment was over, Jesus led them back down the mountain into the world. And sometimes we as Christians are the same way. We, life would be easier if we could build some houses on the mountaintop and somewhere and just away from all the troubles in the world. It's funny how your idea of what's, what's good and where to live changes. When, when I was a teen, oh, God, I moved to a, a metropolitan area or near the ocean, all the trendy places where it's just life is bustling. And then you get older and have kids and you, the daily grind, and you're, older and you're like, man, if I could just move up in the mountains, some lodge away from everybody. I don't want to see anybody and maybe even send my kids off for weeks at a time. You know, something, just get some peace, Right. You know what, people were drawn to that because we, we want to get alone with God, we want to experience this, and we don't want anyone to mess it up. And so well, we could have church every day, right? We could sing songs and just enjoy the glory of God. And uh, we, would, we would be away from gangs and teenage pregnancy and criticism and crisis, and we could have a wonderful time together living on that mountain. Do you, do you know what they call things like that, what that sounds like? A cult. When you think about most major cults that have been noteworthy enough, the news media has got a hold of, you can go on YouTube and look them up. I mean, Jim Jones, other ones. When you look at those, there's some point where they, they, they got this notion in their head that if they just got away from everybody and closed themselves off and had some control over their environment, that they'd be able to stay on the mountaintop experience, right? But see, it's not God's way, and that's why they go awry, because then you got to keep that control. And they start manipulating people, thinking they're going to produce some kind of heavenly experience if they just keep everybody confined. But Jesus led them back down the mountain to the valley. See, the Christian life is not designed to be lived in isolation. That's why I've said many times that, you know, I, I've had to change my mode. I, uh, sometimes I still may have people bow their heads and close their eyes if I'm going to ask people if they want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, I've tried to stop completely what I've heard all my life. I've heard other ministers say where they say, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Because this is not meant to be a, a private relationship. Living for Christ is very public. If you want to put a P in there, it's a personal relationship. Personal between you, you and him, but that doesn't make it private. It actually opposite is public. So the Christian life is not designed to be lived in isolation. We're supposed to be the light to the world. Uh, uh, so back down the mountain we go, and now are the mountaintop experiences bad? Because we can't hang on to them? Of course not. It's wonderful to be together and feel the glory of God. You know, when I was on vacation, I was enjoying time with my family. We were doing a staycation. We did day trips. We slept in our bed. It was just restful. If I want to sleep all day, I could. And it was just, it was a great experience. But I did find myself on that last leg of the vacation. I was like, man, I just miss the New Song family. I miss coming in. We visited churches while we were out to just get into worship there, but it wasn't the same. I missed being with those that God had put me in relationship with. But mountaintop experiences are not designed to last forever. They have a special purpose. So the second lesson from this is mountaintop experiences are for strength and encouragement. That's their purpose. 
They're meant to strengthen and encourage you. And then when you receive that, it's time to go back down the mountain to the valley. Do you know what Jesus talks to his disciples about on the way down the mountain? Guess what the topic of discussion was coming down from that experience? We just saw Elijah and Moses. Can't wait to tell everybody else that. You know, we're God's special disciples and we just came from a mountain. And what Jesus kind of is a killjoy here, he says, he starts talking about death and rejection and suffering. Jesus emerged from the experience of determined to, to take the journey that would ultimately lead him to the cross of Calvary. Jesus was encouraged and refreshed and ready for his assignment. And that's a, just amazing dynamic. You know, if we have a mountaintop experience, we don't want anybody to mess with it. Don't, don't talk about negative stuff. You know, you just come from vacation, you're all happy and everything. You come back to work and the boss says, oh, by the way, while you're gone, we took on 10 new accounts and they're all yours. Or while you're on vacation, everything went wrong with that project you had and now you've got to start over. You know, oh, good grief. What good does it take to have vacation at the first thing in the door that you're going to hit me with that? You know, I'm sure the disciples were feeling a little like, why are we going to talk about death, destruction, and danger, suffering? Jesus, come on. And we have these mountaintop experiences in our Christian walk, amazing moments when we experience the glory of God and feel so close to him. And I love those moments, I do, just like the rest of you. But I also understand the purpose of those moments, to strengthen me and inspire me for the journey God has prepared for me. I have learned that if I get in my office, I have a special moment where God just hits me. I'm going to work on a sermon. And I listen to some, some praise music, and all of a sudden tears are flowing, and the Spirit comes in, and I'm just bawling and snotting. Sorry for the visual, but I'm just, you know, having a moment there. I can guarantee you there's going to be a knock at the door, or I'm going to come out, or I'm going to get a phone call, and there's going to be a downer. It goes with it. It's okay. Some of you are thinking, oh, good grief. I wonder if I ever called him. Did I call him? I wonder if that was me. No, you know what? It's part of it. Whether you're a pastor or, or if you're a Christ follower, you're going to have that same experience. See, here is what the mountaintop experience is here to do. We know the purpose is to encourage and strengthen, but third lesson is mountaintop experiences prepare us for our mission. Here's where, the church, here's, here's where we really go wrong, especially in the Bible Belt, is You'll hear pastors talk about consumer mentalities, and we really, we really do get that, folks. I don't care if you're only in church once a year because you just can't seem to discipline to get in there and let God do something through the people of the church or you've had bad experiences, but we tend to come in looking for what it's going to do for us or what it's not going to do to us, right? We don't come in thinking, hey, this is going to be messy because there's a lot of people in here that the Holy Spirit is messing with them big time, and they're probably not going to act nice all the time. We don't think that. We've got this pie-in-the-sky idea, kind of like my visions of grandeur about marriage. You're going to somehow get in this relationship with like 80 people or 100 people in a church, and it's just going to be rosy because that's the good church. You know what happens is we hop church to church to church because we keep trying to find that one that's just at least not as messy as the last one, right? God's trying to plant you somewhere where, yes, you're going to hit some valleys, but there'll be some people in there that are on the mountaintop that will encourage you and help you. But the reason he's brought you there is he's got a specific mission for every single person in the church. If you're here this morning, even if it's a one-stop, quick stop, God's got something for you to take with you today. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't try to steer you wrong. He doesn't waste your time or his. So mountaintop experiences prepare us for our mission. That's why we have them. We need 
the mountaintop experiences now and then just to recharge us and get us ready to go back into the world to accomplish our assignment. And just like the mountaintop did for Jesus, when we were on the mountaintop, we feel strengthened and encouraged. When I was in junior high, that's probably the roughest time, I think, of any school period of time. Junior high, for me, it was 7th through ninth grade because, you know, I went to Oakdale Junior High in, in Rogers and, you know, your first year you get put upside down in the trash can or your head in the toilet and all those kind of things because you're the underclassman and you're trying to fit in and then your body's going through all those changes and the hormones, all that stuff. It's just a horrible time, right, uh, for school. And, and if you're not one of the popular kids, you don't have a group to fit into, it's rough. But here's the thing. I would go to youth group. And, and, and 14 years old, I had that experience with the Holy Spirit, and you're all charged up, and you're ready to go tear it up at school, and you get to school, and your head goes in the toilet the first day. All of a sudden, you're like, Jesus, I love you, but I hate every person in this school. And I'd just be glad for them to go ahead and burn in hell, because I really don't care at this point. And then you're back to Wednesday night again in worship service, you know, and you're like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And they preach on Jonah, and you're like, oh, I'm going to throw up. I'm just, I'm horrible. I'm horrified. You know, I'm going to hell myself. You know, and so you go through those emotions. But, but the thing is, the Lord is using those times together to be strengthened. That's why we come together at church. It does have a purpose. It's not about a building and trying to just come here because that's what Grandma did, and we're making her proud. She's in her grave proud of us now because we're in church. It's not about that. God is moving the pieces around your life, trying to bring you into a body of Christ where when you hit those valleys, you hit those low points, God not only strengthens and encourages you, but he gives you just enough to carry out the mission he brought you there for. That's why this event in September is so important because we are going to get to see people finally. They'll start to see, this is why God brought me a new song. You're going to have some powerful relationship with someone who ends up breaking down and crying in our community that felt like nobody's here. They're surrounded by churches everywhere. There are people in all these churches who want nothing more than to reach people for the gospel and love on them, but you got the opportunity. God put them in front of you. You're going to find out this is why God brought me to New Song. So in that strength, we move forward and we face our mission to be salt and light, to be representatives of Jesus in a sin-filled world. If we go back, verse 14, And then he came to the disciples and saw a great multitude around them. This is the moment where the pastor comes out of the office and everything's in uh, uh, havoc after you just had that experience on the mountaintop. And so he came down, the disciples saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes disputing with them. The scribes were the ones who were responsible for, for, for writing down accurately the, the word of God. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him, and he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? So for Jesus and his three disciples, it's a welcome back to the real world. No chance to rest. They don't get to relax and enjoy the memories. And as soon as they get to the bottom of the mountain, they face a problem. And the religious experts were questioning the disciples. So basically, you got the deacons. The pastor's there. The deacons are there. There's an argument already going on. Now the deacons are in it. Nobody really knows what anybody's talking about, but they're all arguing over some kind of theological debate, right? And it's an intense, heated argument. And Jesus asked what they're arguing about, as if he didn't know. And neither the disciples nor the teacher answered the question. I get that deer in the headlights sometimes, too. Yeah, you sense something's going on, you know, you walk up into a conversation, everybody's like, oh, pastor's here. Just not going to say anything. We'll let him figure it out. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to him. I'm not going to tell him. 
So neither the disciples or the teachers answer the question. Instead, a man in the crowd speaks up. And this is verse 17. He says, Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples and they, that they should cast it out, but they could not. His son... What a horrible thing happened to him. And Jesus' disciples couldn't cast it out. They, they couldn't do it. And while Jesus was on the mountain, the disciples had attempted to cast the demon out of the boy and failed. They failed. I hate failure. You know, I detest it all the time. If a job's given to me, I want to do my best. My name's attached to it. You know, I want to do my best. But it happens. And it's those times that the critics pounce. That's when you fail. That's when the people are going to all take a moment to give you the critique they've been waiting for, right? How many times people come along like, you're doing so great when you're doing a good job? You're doing a great job. But if you mess up, everybody's on the ready, aren't they? And that's what the disciples are facing here. I mean, they're just coming into this, and I can imagine pretty easily how they must have been feeling. The scribes may have been arguing about demon casting out methods or whether it could even be done. And meanwhile, the boy, who was the reason for the argument, lay helpless on the ground, forgotten. And the dad's standing there thinking, I don't really care what y'all believe. I need help. You know, I, we've had similar experiences with three kids or twin boys. It seemed like our twin boys swallowed a penny every week while they were little. We were at the ER all the time. And, you know, they had other things. One had broken arms so bad, both bones and pins. And here at that time, I'm... A uh, big biker with a big beard and beads in my beard. I'm thinking, they're going to think I'm beating my kids. I'm going to end up, child services, all kind of stuff. And my boys need I'm like, straighten out. Good grief. Quit putting things in your mouth. Quit hurting yourselves. But you go to the hospital and they'd be talking, you know, about what they're going to do to fix this. And you're just hanging in the balance saying, I don't care what the opinion is. Somebody do something. My kid's hurting. And Jesus responds to the argument with a rebuke. He says this in verse 19. He answers answered them, him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? In other words, Jesus is saying, eventually I won't be here right in front of your face. Who are you going to go to then? I mean, yes, it's through prayer, but he's wanting his people, his disciples, the people of God to step up. So Jesus is rebuking the teachers as well as the disciples. And Jesus has come from a meeting with Elijah and Moses uh, on the mountaintop. The glory of God was there. Now his disciples aren't spiritually mature enough to drive out the demon. There, there seems to be a little frustration in his voice. And in verse 19 also goes on, Bring him to me. Then, the boy, then, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed in him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Now this is something very interesting that actually in my childhood, uh, I don't know if I want to say the opportunity to see, but saw when a demon-possessed man was brought into our church begin to pray for him, and the reaction to, of the demon through the manifestation of the person, it was definitely not one of those, oh, this person's playing. And when they start spitting foam every time the name of Jesus is mentioned and the hideous voice that doesn't sound like theirs, you know something's going on that's not natural. It's something supernatural. And then, so Jesus gets in close proximity, and it causes the demon to writhe and, and to manifest. So everybody there probably stops their debate at the point and says, okay, I guess it's more important about the fix, not how it happens. As soon as the spirit that possessed the boy, Jesus, it went nuts. But, but I love Jesus' reaction. This is what really shows you how cool your Lord and Savior Jesus is. He doesn't acknowledge the spirit. 
He doesn't really acknowledge it. He, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't tell the crowd to restrain the boy. He doesn't, you know, uh, get all crazy about it. It's obvious to me that Jesus knows that he's in control of the situation. And that's really the sweet spot as a Christ follower. When he, Jesus talks about us doing even greater things than he did, what he's talking about is us finally tapping into understanding the power that we have that lives within us to do things in his name where we don't have to fret, we don't have to freak out, we don't have to tell people, oh, hold, hold the train here, do something big. It's just a matter of having the confidence knowing God has already put the power within you to handle it. I've had times in my life where I faced something where it was only the power of God that helped me do this, but I didn't freak out. I didn't worry about what was going to happen. I just knew in my spirit God was going to do something. And so he turns to the boy's father and asks a question. Verse 21, so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So from this incredible mountaintop experience with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, we now move to this overwhelming low. The disciples have failed. They've gone from this moment. They've failed in casting out the demon. This boy is in a terrible condition. The father is distraught. Everybody's been arguing. And this man, this father, he knows nothing of the transfiguration of Jesus. He didn't see him turn snow white and these perfected clothing. He didn't hear the voice coming out of the cloud. Uh, he didn't see Moses and Elijah. This father has no knowledge of that. This man just knows he has an incredible problem and it's been going on for a long time and he's in a deep valley. So we learned some lessons from the mountaintop, but we also have some lessons to learn from the valley. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly, but I want you to listen closely. The first lesson is long-term battles lead to fatigue and frustration. You see, here's the thing. Some of you are so desperate for something going on in your life that you need Jesus to answer it, but you want an immediate answer. But the thing is, you've let go on so long that you're so tired and frustrated that when he tries to speak, you can't hear him because you're just too worn out. You're just too exhausted where you're, you're not hearing his leading or feeling the prompting in your heart of his spirit because you've not stayed in contact with the Lord over it. This is a desperate father. I mean, can you imagine the pain? He loves his son, but something is horribly wrong. I mean, they could be walking together as a family uh, by the seaside, and their son will all of a sudden try to drown himself. Or they're having a family campfire, a cookout around the fire, and their son all of a sudden throws himself into the fire, unexplicably. And this father has fought this for a long time, probably all the time wondering, how much longer do I have my son before this finally takes him out? He has to be worn out end of his rope fighting the fight but have you ever been there maybe you're there now but have you ever been there where you're just so tired of fighting the fight i know some of you parents have been there with your children you've been trying hard everything you know to do and nothing seems to work but you love that child you you've just about given up but you love that child maybe it's not your children or there's something else you've been fighting depression and about the time you think you're over it something else happens in life that brings on then instead of that depression again. Maybe you went for several years without any problems, but without warning, all of a sudden you're facing it again. Maybe some of you are fighting addiction. You know, I've had my eyes open wide over the past years, and many of you know the stories about how God has just been putting people in my path left and right. I've been walking life together with, one of which is doing well still in Teen Challenge. Mike Carroll wanted to send his love to the church before I forget. He's doing well 81 days in the program as of uh, about five days ago. So 
Um, you know, God has been leading people on path, and even though I didn't have any addictions to alcohol or drugs or prescription medication, it, it, it gets a grip. And maybe you've tried counseling, you've gone to classes, you've maybe done some time in jail, you've, you've done everything you know to do, but something always seems to happen. And, you know, stress comes. It's one thing I see is stresses are triggers and to bring that back, the, the weakness and trouble strikes. It happens. Once again, you find yourself spiraling downward. Maybe you've been praying for that spouse or that loved one to accept Christ. You want to see them uh, finally be free in their life. And you've tried, you've prayed, it seems like nothing's being answered. Or you keep believing for a turnaround in your finances or your business and it just isn't happening. Or the doctors keep giving you bad reports and you're just tired. You've had all that you can take. And that's the way long-term battles work. They leave us frustrated and fatigued, living in a deep valley far from the mountaintop. And that's where this father is, worn out, tired, ready to give up. But notice, he wasn't even in the argument. He was just standing in the crowd, watching the two groups fight about who they couldn't help, who couldn't help his son. It reminds me, uh, we were watching a reality show about uh, people trying to cross the Canadian border, either for business or for pleasure, whatever, for visitation. And I went into Canada on my motorcycle with the Christian Motorcycle Club, and I found out just how stringent they are. I mean, I got put in the back room and all kinds of stuff. And questions. They even brought a guy who is an expert with Bible school, I guess, and asked me, Questions only someone who had gone to Bible school knew to, to see if I was lying about being a, a pastor. And so we watched the show, and I found out it's not just me after all. They just don't want anybody in Canada because, I mean, everybody on the show just about gets rejected. And, and, you know, sometimes you're in that situation. These people, they're standing there waiting for their fate and just nervous because maybe they got a job right now or they got a, a fiancé or someone in the country, and you can just see the emotions and the terrified, uh, with how terrified they are when they, they get rejected and so this father is just probably terrified. He's just waiting. Someone do something. I don't really care who's right or wrong here. I need something done. Now, look at his next words to Jesus, though, what this father says in verse 22. It says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. This father's gotten a bad rap from people who tell a story. I mean, preachers have been pretty hard on him for this doubt. But Jude wrote in Jude 1.22, be merciful to those who doubt. One thing we need in our culture right now from the Christians, be merciful on those who doubt. Even those that seem hateful towards uh, the Bible or towards your faith, be merciful. That's one of those verses the church as a whole hasn't done very well with. I'm not talking about our church in particular, but the church worldwide. We have a tendency to be threatened by people's doubt and to respond by being very hard on them. Jude said, be merciful to those who doubt. And so this man, man has some doubts, and this, this morning, rather than bust on him, let's learn from him. Because in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So Jesus is gently challenging the man's doubt. And there are no ifs with Jesus. He wanted him to be clear about that. There's no ifs. But we don't always understand God's timing and his purpose in things. I mean, faith is deeply challenging in such times. If you right now have a child, and you can imagine your child going through this, you know in your heart, no matter how strong you think you're in faith, it would be tough to just say, I trust Jesus, he's going to fix this. You know, all the time I'm seeing, uh, when I was on Facebook more, I'd see 
about people asking for prayer because there's a loved one in a coma or, or they, they think they won't uh, live and, and they're believing and, and praying, but you know that there's times of doubt. Well, the second lesson from the valley is everything is possible with Jesus. I mean, that child who has been running from God and causing you grief, it's hopeless, right? Not with Jesus. Depression, you can't seem to shake. Everything is possible with Jesus. That habit you can't kick, the hopeless addiction to alcohol, tobacco, prescription, drugs, whatever it is, it's mission impossible, right? Not with Jesus. Your spouse not being a believer or problems in your marriage, it's not impossible for Jesus. We could go on and on, but I want to, verse 24, it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So here's the third lesson from the valley. Choose to believe. It's a choice. Here's the thing. The father's, father's not just saying, I believe. He's saying, help me with my unbelief. You pointed it out, and I agree. I am having a hard time believing here because all your followers here just argued for uh, quite a while while my boy's laying out and no one could do anything. So, so I'm having a hard time believing. And some of you have prayed and prayed about things, and you're wondering why Jesus isn't answering or why the Lord hadn't answered. And maybe it's not in your timing. But ask him to help with your unbelief. Maybe change a prayer instead of answer this for me is help me to believe. Help me in my unbelief. I have to appreciate the raw honesty of this father in this moment. So he states his faith. I do believe, and he also acknowledges his doubt. Help me overcome my unbelief. Faith and doubt, both present in this father. And obviously he has a measure of faith, and that's why he came looking for Jesus, but he has been in this situation so long, his faith is difficult. His doubt is strong. So the question for you and me is this morning, in the middle of a deep valley, which voice will you listen to? You know, it's interesting since I've become pastor, and I'm not just sitting in the pew anymore. Some of you don't know, I've been in this church since before it really started. Uh, the pastor that planted it, I helped go around with him while he was raising support to start it. My wife and I, along together, went with him. And, and so I've been sitting in the pew, like you, listening to the preacher. And after I become the pastor, I finally realized there is a difference between what I would hear when I just sat in pews, because I hear the reasons why people can't make commitments to the Lord or being in the house of God. And it's amazing to me that nine times out of ten, if there is an excuse or a reason why someone can't be in the house of God, I'm not talking about work schedule, like bosses against me going, whatever, but when we just make excuses, you know what, nine times out of ten, it's because of some difficulty we're having in our life that we think, I need to be attending to that than be in a place where I can be strengthened. Because this is where most of our mountaintop experiences will happen. When we're around people who believe like we do and will strengthen us. That's what the intent of the church was. If you go and do a study on what Jesus actually intended the institution of the church to be, it was to encourage. This doesn't make your relationship with God. You can't come to church and it just make a relationship between you and Christ. That has to be done on a personal level, a decision to follow him. The church is to encourage and strengthen. And when you sever that relationship when you consistently make other things more important than being there, then it's a catch-22. What I see that a lot of can't, people can't see is they've actually been letting the devil get a foothold by separating themselves from the strength, the, the tool God gave them for strength, and now they're leaving the rest of their life to, for the devil to keep kicking them 
And so they think, I can't be at church because, well, you know, we, always, we got all this other drama going on. Well, that seems, to a pastor, it seems like oxymoron. Put all that stuff, leave it in God's hands, say, I trust you for it because I'm going to go worship today and just see what he does. That's not for our church attendance. Listen, if you got to go somewhere else for God to prove it to you so you know this preacher isn't lying to you, it's okay. I want you here. I love you. There's a lot of good church in the area, but God will prove it to you. He's proven it to me in my life. I just mentioned to someone who is praying for a wayward uh, grandchild before service, and I remind them, I said, remember what I've said, what is it, 18, maybe 20 years ago now, I remember right where I was standing on a phone call with my mom, I said, Mom, I'll never step foot in church again. I'm done with those church people. The conviction that says, don't be afraid, you're going to make it. The inner assurance that says, this is not going to last forever, those mountaintop experiences. But you can be free, you can overcome this, it's a choice. Sometimes it's a difficult choice, but which voice will you listen to? When you're in the valley, choose to believe. It is a choice. Verse 25 goes on, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you. Come out of him and enter in to no, enter in no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. The fourth lesson in the valley, your doubt does not disqualify you for a miracle. Maybe some of you have been taught that if you doubt God, then he's not going to do anything in your life, and that's not true. We can see in this lesson, I've seen it in my life, we could go through the Bible, I'll give you plenty of examples where God, in his infinite mercy and grace, came through for someone even in their doubt, and through that, he proved himself. You can see, uh, you can see glimmers of it in, in, uh, with Jonah and his situation. You can see it in many, any place in the Bible, but your doubt does not disqualify you for a miracle. Yes, we're supposed to have faith. Yes, Jesus told him to have faith, uh, but he said, help me in my unbelief. That means he still wasn't there. Did Jesus say, okay, well, I'll come back later and I'll take care of your boy as soon as you get that taken care of. You know, you're only at 90% when you get to 100%. Or you're only at 40%, you need another 60% belief. Then I'll come back. No. In his honesty, help me with my unbelief. He said, okay, I'll heal your son. You're going to believe when I get done with this. Isn't that awesome? The father was honest about his doubt, and Jesus still gave him a miracle. I believe in faith. I love faith. But far too many faith teachers would have, have you believe that your miracle is completely dependent on your state of mind, your words, your faith. If you have doubt, it's just not going to happen for you. And who says whose faith it depends on anyway? The boys, he couldn't even keep his body out of danger. He, had, he didn't even have control of his body. What, the father? Well, he is just reaching, uh, he's just reacting like any other father would. He can't fix it, and he's desperate. Aren't you glad God's not like that? God isn't intimidated by your doubt. God doesn't look down and say, I'd like to heal him, but there's that little bit of doubt, and I think I'll move on and help someone else. God is bigger than your doubt. God is bigger than your fears. And I see here in this scripture, in this text, that your honest doubts do not disqualify you from a miracle. Now, if you're just set on doubting God, you want to stay in the valley, you're, you're one of those that you're just always in the molly grubs, i got to be careful in case somebody's name is Molly. I've used that before when we had a Molly. But you're in the Molly Grubs. You just want to be uh, just Debbie Downer, whatever you want to use for that. But you're just down all the time, and you insist on being there. Then, yes, I can see where God says, when you decide to finally uh, surrender and have faith that I will do something in your life, then I will help you. But you are set on 
uh, opposing what I've said, my word, my truth. But this is not a situation like that. The father is not set against God or set against his word or set against him. He's just having doubt because he's so hurt. He's hurting for his son. You aren't sure your child will ever do right or serve God. You doubt, you doubt that it's going to happen, and that's okay. God can still reach them. You doubt you can ever be free from depression, and God can still uh, lift that cloud. Your doubt isn't a disqualifying, it's not disqualifying you from a miracle. Whether it's addiction or your spouse and you're having troubles, whatever it is, your finances, your job, your doubt will not disqualify you. But you've got to at least be willing to say, Lord, help me with my unbelief. You need to at least be able to ask for help. His father doubted and his son was set free. And then it says, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. And this is another thing I love about Jesus. You know, everybody had been arguing. The father had some doubt. Jesus wanted to make sure they hit the valley just low enough that when he actually did the miracle, they'd know what it was like to hit that rock bottom so that maybe they didn't want to be there again. Right? He could have just done it before everybody hit that, but they thought he was dead. I mean, that's the worst. Now, Jesus, good, good going, Jesus. I mean, you had your chance to deliver him from the demon. Now he's dead. You waited too long. All that, no, 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 now he's dead. You know? I'm sure there is some sarcastic ones that maybe didn't use that back then, but <laughs> this is what you're doing. And the fifth lesson, final from the valley, Jesus restores completely. That's what we want to end with here. The truth of it is, he didn't do it partially. He didn't just make the boy a little better. I'm going to challenge you, if you come forward for prayer up here, don't, don't come up and just say, I'm not saying for my sake, between you and God. Don't come in your heart saying, if God would just ease my pain a little, I just need a little ease. Don't do that to God. He's not that kind of God. Come up and say, God, I, I may not even have the faith to believe you can completely heal me. Help me with my belief, because you are a complete God. You want to do things whole and complete. And with one touch from Jesus, the boy has been set free. The family no longer lives in fear. The father has been delivered from his fatigue and frustration. And Jesus didn't halfway handle it. He took it the whole way. I am a believer that we need to either do things the whole way or not at all. It's Jesus' way. And if you want a life filled with victory, you've got to decide, what voice am I going to listen to? Doubt? Or will I at least ask him, help me with my unbelief? So this morning as we close out, I want to just take a moment. We're going to hear a moment. We're going to just close our eyes and, and uh, give a moment for the Spirit to speak to our hearts. The one danger in these times when we come together as a mountaintop is if you haven't taken the time to fully experience that mountaintop experience while you had the chance and you walk down the valley tomorrow you're at work or you're in your situation or you're around those bad influences and you haven't been strengthened to face the valley. And this is your moment. As everybody bows their heads and close their eyes, as first I want to take a moment, if you're here this morning and you, you've heard this message, and above all what you've determined in your heart is, I don't have a relationship with the Lord like you're talking about, Pastor CJ. I haven't really made a commitment. I may have told people I go to church, I may have 
expressed some kind of belief in many ways or identified myself with Jesus in many ways, but I haven't truly had a relationship with him where I know he's speaking to my heart, he's leading, he's guiding me, that I've turned my life over to him. If you're here and you have not done that, I want to take this opportunity for you to raise your hand for me to pray for you. And in that, you're just making a confession to the Lord that I am ready to let you lead me. And we're going to pray a prayer together. That's you and you need to... You need the Lord to to lead you. You want him to be Lord of your life. I want you to just raise your hand. All right. I trust we've all made a decision. For, For everyone else, let's keep our heads bowed for a moment. Let's just take a moment and ask the Lord to help us in our unbelief where there's unbelief. Ask him in these final moments to just strengthen us and give us the encouragement we need. Maybe we're not in a valley right now, but... We know from the way life is, that roller coaster ride, that there could be one around the corner and we need his help ahead of time. As a previous pastor, Pastor Roger used to say in in a message he preached that it's those times when you're on the mountaintop, you can see for miles and when the Lord speaks to you, it seems so clear, you're so close to him. And when you get in the valley, sometimes there's fog and you can't tell whether, whether, which way you should go. It's those times when you're on the mountaintop, you should trust in what God has told you. Because when you're valley, the motions and everything else that can lead you astray can confuse you. But let those mountaintop experiences carry you from one mountaintop to the other. So just take a moment and let the Lord speak to your heart. pray you'll carry that conversation on uh, the rest of the week. Um, I want to thank God that the air conditioning held on all through second service. I think it got a little warm. We freeze everybody out in first service. Just so you know, if you come first service, you like it cold, it's frigid. But that's because of this building. I'd be thankful when we get in our new building and and uh, have a little more uh, control over the temperature. But love you. God bless you. Remember Wednesday night, 630. We have a great time. Uh, there's people in the first service you don't meet if you come to second. And on Wednesday nights, you get a chance uh, to, to meet some new folks that you haven't met before. So love you and see you then.